ai no Kawaka, na Anuri, no Yuyua, na Wahong, Shinambu, Panke, Fushinan, Shabawati, Shinambu, Kikirani, Sai, Shabakirani, Sai, Makikirani. And welcome to another edition of Dr. Paul Live. I know you're dying to hear that introduction. No, the lady did not have sinus problems, cough due to cold. That was a witch doctor. <laughs> and she was blowing a blessing upon all of those fine actors at the World Economic Forum. That was last year. Oh, and this is Dr. Paul, by the way. Thanks for stopping by. Always good to have you here. Yes, that was a witch doctor last year. And things have gotten so much better this year. Now we've got this. <laughs> oh, yes. It is so much better at the World Economic Forum. Where you've got all of the fruits, flakes, and nuts they want to dominate your world. Oh, doesn't this sound great? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, they want to dominate your world. A worldview, by the way, trying to discern who deserves to live. <laughs> and who deserves to die. That's right. That's the Bill Gates group. And those that want you to keep taking those clot shots. Yeah. That way they can eliminate, what do they say, 7 billion people across the, across the globe? Because there are only certain people that deserve to be alive. To use whatever remains of, of, of the environment. You know, climate change is out there and, you know, the UFOs and whatever. They practically own South America. Uh, <clears throat> they're out there determining where you should go, what you should do, who you should marry, what kind of car you should drive, and all this kind of stuff. And they've got the witch doctors and the weirdos out there blessing them. Oh, it's wonderful. Anyway, welcome to the program. Glad that you are here. Uh, I just wanted to share some really good news with you. And thank you for uh, listening. We have officially passed 5,000 downloads. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's, that, is, that is outstanding. Uh, at least for this program. And it's because of you. 
Thank you for downloading the program. I hope you have found it to be of a great benefit to you. And with that, I want to also welcome some newbie followers uh, since the last time I was with you anyway. Uh, there, there's been three. Lauren. Lauren is me. Well, Lauren, I'm glad you are you. <laughs> Paul is here. I am. Uh, Paul is me. And then there have been a couple of anonymous individuals who joined. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, Abiod, I don't know. I don't know if that's your name or just something you made up. But anyway, you're here. Thanks for following the program. I, like I said, I hope it can be a blessing to you. Uh, certainly by getting into God's book here and putting it to practice, that's a good place to start. And we've been talking about the Christian Constitution, or otherwise known as the Book of Romans, for quite some time now. And we're going to keep on going here. We're going to shift gears slightly and talk about something different. We're going to start putting into practice now a lot of the things that we have been studying in the previous 11 chapters. We're all the way to chapter 12 and a pivotal two verses today. I couldn't decide, actually, how I wanted to do this. I know I've been saying less is more, uh, and then let you kind of take it and run with it or whatever. That's perfectly fine. But I don't know what it was. It was just something that was so intriguing about these two verses that I thought, you know, if if I pull up short, I, normally I do about an hour and uh, or longer, <laughs> depending on how you look at it. Uh, and I figured, okay, that's, that's good enough. But for some reason, the more I looked at this, I was like, man, this is just so good right here. I just may spend the whole hour right here. And if I don't, if I happen to wander off and, you know, keep on going down, cause I, I had it kind of marked out all the way to verse uh, eight. And then I just go, man, I just don't know. Can, can I, would I be doing justice? To these two verses, if I just kind of blew through them and left them, as, especially when Paul is making a transition here. You know, previously, in the previous podcast, for several of them anyway, five or six, seven, I don't know, we were talking about whatever happened to the Jews. And it was kind of a parenthetical type. Uh, Paul has just got done talking about uh, there's now no... Uh, condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, and explained, you know, that all things work to the good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose, and so on and so forth. That kind of came out of the uh, whole idea that, uh, you know, even though you're a Christian, you're still going to sin, stuff like that. And then he goes into this, hey, what happened to the Jews thing? Has, has God gotten rid of them? Is he Is he just like, put them on permanent hold and forget about them. And so Paul spent three chapters from 9, 10, and 11 talking about that. No, they're not done. I'm a Jew. Look what happened to me. Oh. Hey, Paul, uh, you're a Jew and you're a Christian. Can I be like you? Sure you can. Uh, but it's going to be on God's time and God's way and so on and so forth. But in the meantime, uh, God is going to be dealing with the Gentiles. And then he comes to chapter 12. And now we're going to kind of pick up where he left off in chapter 8. Paul has this way, if you've ever read 
or really sat down and studied out what Paul has to say and how he writes it. He has this thing about changing gears almost in midstream, long sentences, and then also, eight, oh, let's turn to the right here. Let's go over and talk about this a little bit. And then kind of brings it back to all together and puts a nice pretty bow around it and says, here it is. You know, uh, a letter to the to the Romans or the, the Ephesians or Colossians or Galatians or whatever. Uh, that's, how, that's how Paul writes. And he does that very thing right here. So if you happen to have your Bible and you want to follow along, which I highly recommend, as I have said before, the only way you're going to learn the Bible is by picking it up and reading it. Uh... So if you have a Bible, a, a, a quality translation, maybe you read Greek. Uh, I do a little. Ha <laughs> ha. Uh, but if you have a Bible, pick it up, turn to chapter 12, and let's dig in here and see what Paul has to say about two world views. That's how I've entitled this, Two World Views. And it goes right along with what I've been trying to share on this podcast. There really are only two worldviews. Now, there's a lot of variations of, of one of the views, and there are several applications of the other. But when it really boils down to how to see the world, how to interpret it, the things that transpire, whether we're talking about religion or politics or law or education, how to raise your kids and stuff like there's only two. You're either going to look at the world through God's lens or you're going to look through it through man's lens. Those are the only two worldviews. Now, the devil's out there tainting things, but that fits into the human, the fallen human worldview. And I've been asked all the time. I got a great question this last week <laughs> uh, from a brother of mine uh, who asked about the Hegelian dialectic. When you get into that kind of stuff, you're uh, splitting hairs from the human worldview trying to explain reality without God. And the more they split those hairs... And the more that they try to exalt human autonomy, the further they get away from God. And really, you know, that's kind of what we've been talking about all along when we're talking about the lostness of mankind as he wanders about, uh, suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. And God says, okay, you want to go down that road? There you go. And before long, they're not only thinking weird things, and we got all kinds of different terminology today uh, in that respect. And where we talk about wokeism or political correctness or whatever, a deconstruction, talked about that a little bit here uh, on this podcast. All of that is this human fallenness splitting hairs. How are we going to try to make sense of the world without God? That's all that it is. And it just gets gets keeps getting weirder and more demonic as the years pass. All of it's going, I mean, God is going to work this out to the degree where ultimately it's going to glorify him. And for some people, it's going to be a very sad day. 
whether they're religious in an outward sense or whether they're ones that are running around claiming to be atheists or whatever, uh, it's going to be a very sad day for them because God is going to bring them back to the reality that, you know what, there are only two worldviews, and those who have run away from him, who think that they're not going to bow the knee to Jesus Christ one day, are going to be in for a very sad day. Uh, I don't know how else to explain it, but Paul here in Romans chapter 12 points this out in two verses. And so let's read them real quick here, and let's let's discuss them uh, as best that I can. I Like I said, I wasn't sure how I was going to do this. Uh, I just asked, God, here you are. Uh, here, here's, your, here's your word. I'm your servant. Do what you will, and may you get the glory from it. So I'm reading the ESV here. I've also got the NAS and the King James alongside, and I've got my Greek text open here as well. Uh, if you have one of those, that's great. If you have something else that's comparable, that's not a New World's Translation or a Book of Mormon. <laughs> like the Book of Mormon is going to bring this kind of stuff up, or the Quran or whatever. No, that's not going to work here. But if you have something comparable, a comparable English translation, then please follow along. And if you can, uh, let me encourage you to do this. Memorize these two verses. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Then verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's see where this goes. Paul opens up with a coordinating conjunction, and he does this when he wants to make a change, but he, he wants you to remember where you came from, and he does this several times in the, uh, in the book of Romans. In fact, if we take a look at this word, <clears throat> un, <laughs> that we translate as therefore, Paul uses this coordinating conjunction 48 times just in the book of Romans. 48 times. There are 16 chapters in Romans. He uses them three times per chapter saying, you know what? I want you to remember this. I want you to remember that by saying, therefore, what went before is now what I want you to reflect upon as I tackle the next subject because it's coordinating. I'm going to Put this all together so that you can see it more clearly. So he says, I, uh, therefore, therefore, I appeal. Uh, a great word. To me, this is an intimate word, and it, it, it kind of goes along with uh, him using brothers, calling those that he is, is uh, alluding to as being brothers. He, he says, parakaleo. This is, a, this is a compound Greek word, and it's a way of saying, hey, come over here. I want you to sit down right here next to me. I'm calling you alongside me here. I have something I really want to share with you. Uh, and and he, he uses it in a way where it's like, 
just keep on sitting here. Yep. Yep. Therefore, you know all that stuff I talked about? I want you to sit here, right here next to me. I want you to sit here. In fact, some translations would uh, uh, translate this as urge or to beg, to beseech. It's, like I said, it's a word of intimacy. Uh, Paul has something very personal to say at this point. He's just got done talking about the Jews and how they're on the back burners. And now he's gone back to talking to his brethren there in Rome. Okay, now you know about that. Come over here. I got something to say to you, brothers. In fact, once again, this, this whole idea of calling uh, his, his uh, fellow Christians there in, in uh, Rome, brothers, is, uh, is, is a word of intimacy as well. Because he uses this term like 19 times throughout his, all of his letters, 10 times here in the book of, book of Romans. He calls them brothers. I've got something to share with you. And by way of the mercies of God. I got to thinking about that. If you're making an appeal to somebody and you want them to reflect back upon what you just got done saying, what exactly are you intending by mercies? Mercies that belong to God, they're relative to God. What would he be talking about? And I got to thinking about that. I've read some commentators on this very very issue as well. And the more I thought about it, I'm going, well, mercies, once again, is, is something that God doesn't give us that we deserve. And we all deserve God's wrath. We don't deserve his pity. We certainly don't deserve his salvation. Uh, we don't deserve his attention. What we deserve are God's eternal wrath for all that we have done by way of, 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 of our sin, sinful lives. We're, we're rebels. We are. We're rebels against God if God doesn't reach out and touch us and bring us into his family. So I can think of, I'm, I, I am appealing to you. I'm begging you, brothers, by the mercies of God, all of the things that I just got done talking about. And what would that be? Oh, man, I... I had to go back, and I'm going, man, he has said an awful lot. You remember when we first started this study way back in chapter 1, how from chapter 118 to 320 where he laid it on the line, just how damnable we are, how repugnant we are, lost in our own sin, in our own deception, as we suppress the truth about God, and then we create all of these idols that we worship, whether it's creatures or creeping things or even us, and it carries out in our sex lives. You're talking about the homosexual perversions and then our endorsement of other people who get involved in that kind of stuff, say they're deserving of death. And then he goes on and he talks about the hypocritical aspect of the Jews, you know, you're, you're claiming to be one thing, but you know, you're, uh, when, when you're out there saying, I'm a teacher of the law, are you not taught, and so on and so forth? And then he gets into this 14-point indictment in chapter 3. That just kind of keeps compounding just how ugly we are without God. And from there, then he kind of 
turns it over to, hey, let me give you some examples. Although we're, we're decrepit, we're disgusting, we're perverted in our thinking, God in his mercy and his grace reaches down and says, you know what? There are some who are going to be redeemed for this. And let me give you some examples, whether it's Abraham or David, how they believed God. And because they believe God, now they are in a right relationship with God. And because of that right relationship, now we've got peace with God. It's something that you know that man tries to strive after in his relationships with each other, but fails miserably. Why? Because God's not part of the conversation. And he points this out. And then he goes on and he talks about uh, the, the continuance of sin and the argument or the question about, hey, you know, if, if your so-called Christian belief is all about grace, then we can go out and do whatever we want to do, right? And how many times have we heard that argument before? And Paul says, nope, that's, that's not the case. You're dead to it. You're dead to sin, even though it lives within, and it's still nigh by. You know, every time somebody tries to do something that is right, you can bet that something, some temptation or whatever is right around the corner to try to mess it all up. Still, there is grace. And where sin abounded, grace abounds all the more. And so then he goes on and he he talks about this even more in chapter 7, which I think is a is a chapter that every blood-bought Christian ought to study just intensely because it tells us of the presence of sin and what it does to us. Even when we profess to be Christians, it's not an excuse for it. It's not an excuse to keep going out and committing certain sins. But it tells us, you know what, even though we profess the name of Christ and we have given ourselves over to him because of what God has done in our lives, sin's right there. Making us do things that, well, we wouldn't normally do, we wouldn't want to do. Christians don't understand this. Many don't, I should say, simply because they trip and fall on their face, do something stupid, and I've said sin is stupid. Uh, it is a fantasy world. That, oh, yeah, it's a great time. It's almost like Disneyland until you come back to reality and you find out, uh-oh, uh, that took me nowhere except straight down to the uh, uh, spiritual electric chair and zapped me all over again. Uh, no, it's, it's, a, it's a fantasy world of death. That being the case, though, Paul says... Uh, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. So guess what? Even though that sin is with you, there's still no condemnation. I, I presented the podcast saying, you know what? This is the argument in Romans chapter 8 that tells us that once a person is in Christ, he's always there. Oh, yeah, he's going to, like I said, he's going to fall on his face. And you're going to, if you're a professing Christian today, guess what? That's what's going to happen to you. But so many of you, you think, yeah, I got, I've got to run now to, down to, the, to the, uh, the confessional box, or I've got to run over to the pastor's house, or I've got to get, go down to the baptistry. I've got to get baptized all over again. And I'm saying that is a total waste of time. You're in Christ. 
You just simply need to confess that and move on. Yes, Lord, that's the sin within. I, I hate it. I hate it, Lord. I fell on my face. I, I disgusted you, maybe my wife or my kids or my colleagues or friends or whatever. I just fell on my face. Sin within took me down. Oh, the devil made me do it. No, sin made you do it because it's still there. And I know I'm over-elaborating, but I'm trying to point out just how uh, important chapter 7 is. But there's no condemnation. And why is that? Because of the mercy of God. And that's what we're talking about from what I just elaborated here, elaborated here on uh, chapter 1 all the way to chapter 8, 9, 10, 11. This happened to the Jews. Now what has happened to the Jews has become a benefit to the Gentiles. All of this because of the mercies of God. Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 12, look back there. That's where we came from. This is for your benefit. If you'll stop and think about it as a composite whole, some people want to drill down or cherry pick uh, little verses and stuff like that and strip them out of their context and they don't know where they came from and they don't know where they're at and they don't know where they're going. And yet Paul is saying, I am appealing to you. I beg you. I'm calling you alongside by the mercies of God. God is not going to give you what you deserve. Brothers, notice he's talking to converts here, not those that are in need of conversion. Oh, yeah, they need to be converted. There's no doubt about that. The lost people, all lost people need that. But he's talking to Christians here. That's something that oftentimes gets lost in these types of discussions as we try to impose this upon the lost who have no clue what you're talking about. And we forget that, no, he's talking to Christians here. You still need the mercy of God. And for what purpose? Well, Paul gives us what? And this is something else that is lost on the Christian world today in too many instances. Oh, we go and we, you know, sing our 7-Eleven songs. And we repeat, you know, how we're there to worship God and all this kind of stuff. And then as soon as the, you know, the service is over with, well, it's back to deja vu all over again. We figuratively spit upon each other, kick sand in each other's faces. We're talking about Christians. We're not necessarily talking about the world. We abuse and, and insult each other. We don't help each other. Oh, well, we'll help him if we're within the click. Or if it makes us feel good. And we're real spiritual then. But we miss out on what Paul is saying here. I beg you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Let's just stop right there because Paul's going to get into some, 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 uh, words here they're going to magnify what that living sacrifice is all about but he's talking about the presentation literally the word is to set up 
or sit beside, to stand beside, to, and it's your bodies, your physical bodies. How do you do that? I gave up the Buffalo Bills game last night. <laughs> sure you did. Oh, that was a real... I think about this one. I remember one, one time going down to, to New Orleans. A, an interesting city, we'll put it that way. Not a place I'd... Not, I mean, if you're there, and that's great. Not a place I'd want to be. But I remember walking down Bourbon Street... Uh, that's so famous to so many people. And all the weird stuff that's there. All of the drinking and the puking in the street and all the little demonic curmudgeons walking around in their costumes trying to make a buck, looking and acting weird. And I was thinking to myself, here's where Mardi Gras at. And I was there during the time of the year when it was not actual full-blown Mardi Gras. But they kind of, they prelude to it. And of course, they had the little parades that were going up and down the streets and people throwing out the beads. I was thinking to myself, this is stuff that's supposed to be leading up to what, Lent? And what, 40 days of so-called dedication or abstinence? And then turn around and go jump right back into the puke. Back into the old lifestyle. We've got to get it out. And I'm thinking to myself, this is not godly in the... I was just blown away. And yet so many people are going to do that. I gave up pecan pie for a land. Well, whoop did he do? Do you think that really pleases God? A, another bloodless turnip? like Cain offered back in the Old Testament? Do you think that really is going to put you in good standing with God? Paul says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, not just during Lent, not just during, well, I've got this time marked out in my calendar here where I'm going to fast, and, well, I'm going to be wonderful, kind of like the Muslims do during Ramadan. Oh, that's going to cleanse me and... And make me a better person. Really? When the when the Quran tells you to do other things like go out and, you know, abuse the infidel or murder them or whatever, wherever you see them, and you want to treat the Jews like they're, you know, subhuman? Really? A month out of the year, that's going to make you in good standing with God? That's not what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Present your bodies. As a living sacrifice, as long as you're alive, that is what you are to do as a Christian. 24-7, 365. Now, like I said, the Apostle Paul has talked about that sin within, so there's going to be those times you're not going to be doing this. And you're going to have to ask for God's forgiveness and then move on. You're no longer condemned in the sense that, you know what, your salvific standing with God has been, not been terminated by it, but you're not walking in the light and are going to be able to do those things that are going to be pleasing to God, who's going to talk about here shortly. If you don't confess that and then abstain from doing it further, and it's going to be a struggle, I'm telling you, 
you know, whether you're doing drugs or smoking or sex or whatever, and it be it, it's it's divisive in the sense that it's separating you from it's going to be hard. But still, it, it doesn't mean you give up. You keep going. You don't let the devil get the best of you. And, and some people do, though. And before long, they walk around with their long chins. Oh, I gave it up. I, I couldn't do it anymore. You know, oh, I'm going to deconvert. You aren't going to do anything. You're either, it's almost like saying, you know, uh, <clears throat> I'm going to quit being human. <laughs> I'm going, well, good luck with that. I, well, I'm deconverting from humanity. Uh, I couldn't live that life anymore. Oh, well, yeah. Okay. Right. It's the same thing with Christianity. You either are a Christian or you're not. If you're a Christian, you're going to be one till you die. And then you're going to be even a better Christian because you're going to drop all of the, the sin within and the corrupt body and go on and live in the presence of God. If you're not a Christian, it's not for you to say, oh, I'm going to deconvert. You weren't one to begin with. Well, are you saying I wasn't a human? I'm saying that's all that you are. In the meantime, Christian, you are to live in a way which you sacrifice your life. My adoration is for God. Therefore, all the things that I say and I think that I do are to the glory of God rather than myself. Again, two worldviews. You're either going to do things that are pleasing to God or you're not. You're, and this starts with a thinking process that Paul's going to get into here in a second. Because the Christian life is not just one of, well, uh, this is how I, this is this is how I feel about things. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with, you know, what I actually got to put some thought into this. And so many people though are comfortable with, you know, uh, a robotic Christianity, where they just go and sit. And they get into this routine. And, uh, you know, I put my 10% in the plate, and then I get up and I go home, and then I cook dinner, and watch the football game, and I go out and rake the leaves and all that kind of stuff. And then we do this again week after week after week after week, and they never grow up. Oh, they may have spent 50 years in, in the church, and they have never grown up. Why? Because they've never put any thought into it. They're little robots. And so, you know, they, they can be, and you know, robots can be very impersonal. <laughs> in fact, I'm looking, not necessarily at a robot, but I'm looking at my screen here in front of me as I produce this program, and I go, you know what? This thing, this thing isn't going to talk back to me. I may talk to it all day long and maybe make a few recordings, but that's me. It is not going to do. And that's how a lot of Christians are. They're very robotic. In fact, they have never even left the the old life. There's nothing to sacrifice because they're dead where they sit. But the Apostle Paul says, you're to present yourselves. As a, you know, especially if we're this, this priesthood that Peter talks about, if we're this, this glorious priesthood that God has set up by his grace, by his mercy... Instead of looking back to the Old Testament where sacrificing bulls and goats, this, this is you sacrificing your life for God. A lot of people say, well, I went and I gave my life to Jesus. 
Really? Is that what you did? Did you present your bodies as a living sacrifice? I doubt that even ever comes into the conversation. And he says how this sacrifice, or what the, what the sacrifice was supposed to be all about. Because you've got these adjectives that he's thrown in here. He says they're supposed to be holy and acceptable. Well, let's take a look at that word holy. What does holy mean? Holy means to be separated, to be sanctified, to be consecrated, set apart for God. Your bodies, which he had talked about before. You remember when he talked about uh, uh, this dying to sin over in chapter 6? How he said, you know, that you're the, the, depending on where your sacrifice is at, where your mind is at, that's the slavery that you're going to put, put yourself under. And he says, you know, if you're a slave to sin, well, that's what you're going to be doing. But he says, you're a Christian now. You have been blood-bought now. You are a slave to Jesus Christ. In fact, that's what the Apostle Paul called himself almost right from the beginning. And he liked it. A lot of people don't like the idea of being a slave to Jesus, to God. No, I'm my own free agent. I can do what I want to do. Uh, Not if you're presenting your bodies as a holy sacrifice to God. You see, I think a lot of people just get caught with the idea, this just takes too much effort, and I like certain things. I like my whatever. you know. My, I like my pornography. It really turns me on, man. And I'm, in fact, I saw this, I, I just, I, I was thinking to myself, you meatheads, you, got, you guys that are 50, 60 years old, like me, and you're out there thinking, you know what? I'm going to get a date with some young babe. I'm going to send her all kinds of money, and she's going to love me. And she's over in this other country. She sends me pictures. She's gorgeous. She's really interesting. You are a fool. That's And if you're, and I have no doubt, that's not just, you know, a secular fool, a lost pagan that's doing it. It's Christians doing this kind of stuff, too. Your body is to be sacrificed to God. If you're supposed to, if you're 70 years old, <clears throat> excuse me, and you're chasing a 19-year-old picture on a on a on a on the computer screen or some video that some some uh, scammer has uh, sent you to try to get you to send her thousands of bucks, you're a fool. You're not sacrificing to God in that respect. You're sacrificing to the devil through your lust. But your sacrifice, your living sacrifice, is to be holy, separated from the world unto God. And this gets into this acceptable, which is another adjective describing this sacrifice. It's to be pleasing to God. And the Bible says elsewhere that without faith, which has been a major topic here in the book of Romans, by faith, a person is redeemed or saved. He says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Well, your living sacrifice 
is to please God. That should be foremost on your mind when you're developing your world view, which is supposed to be the Christian worldview, is what I am doing according to what the Word of God has to say. Does this please God? Well, the only way you're going to know is if you pick up the Bible and you read it. So many people think, you know, what if I'll just put this underneath my pillow and I lay on it and I sleep on it by osmosis, it will drain into my brain. No, it won't. You've got to pick it up and read it and commune with God via his spirit and then turn around and put that into practice because we're when we're talking about a living, acceptable, pleasing sacrifice to God, we're talking about a lifestyle. It's not a theory that you develop in your office or in your bedroom or whatever and leave it there. It's something that determines every thought that you make, act that you engage in, conversation that you have. It should proliferate your whole life. It's pleasing to God. And then Paul goes on, he says here, the, the ESV as well as uh, the rest of the uh, uh, versions I have in front of me has, which is, which is imported by the translators. That's not in the Greek text. It just says your spiritual worship. Now, the more that I thought about this one too, I think these don't exactly give a clear indication of what he is striving after here, which is your spiritual worship. Uh, the NES is a, a spiritual service of worship, and then the King, I think the King James probably comes the closest here by saying reasonable service. Because the word here is logicane. Logicane latrian. Well, that's where we get the word logic, or the, the words about service. It's something that is thought provoking. You say, what is thought-provoking? Your presentation of your body as a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice to God is something that is to be thought about in a logical way because God is logical. It's not something that just randomly happens one day and Wow, I think I'll go do this because it just makes me it makes me feel good about it. You, you remember? It's not about your feelings. It's about what you've put in mind. You've purposely done as you thought about what you've read, what you've heard, what you've what you've communed with God about, as He has shared with you. Remember, I've I, I pointed this out before in Ephesians chapter two and verse ten, where you know oftentimes we cut it off at verse nine because you know what we're being evangelistic <laughs> and leaving it up to the sinner to figure out what he needs to do is he makes his free will choice. No, he doesn't make a free will choice. He does those things that are in accord with God's plan and purpose. And so we forget verse ten in chapter two. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's part of your sacrifice to do the works of God that he has put upon your mind, upon your heart to accomplish as you 
Present yourselves as a living sacrifice to God that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's a lifestyle again. It's not something you just do on Sunday morning for one hour. Or maybe if you go to one of these cheese ball Sunday school hours, that's actually 30 minutes of yap and, you know, including who's got the coffee and the, and the donuts that morning, and you sit down for 20 minutes from something that's been written by some religious organization that has no correspondence with you and thousands of miles away. The Christian life is more than that. The Christian walk is more than that. It's logical. And for all these people who say, well, you know, you have faith, and, and we over here in the secular world, we have science. <laughs> is all I've got to say to that. The Christian life is logical. It's reasonable, like the King James says. It is well thought. It is scientific. Now, that doesn't mean that it's dull and Boring, I'm telling you, you get into the into the Bible, you start reading it, and you start considering these things and being led to them. I guarantee you'll be amped up. I'm amped up right now. I was amped up for a long time. I wanted to do this several days ago, but <laughs> life is what it is, and we had to go take care of the car, and I had to go take care of our health and all of that kind of stuff. But when I get in here and I start doing this and I just go, man, this is just great stuff. This is why I've said before, if Christians would simply pick up the Bible and read it, put it to practice, everything would be transformed. They would be excited. They wouldn't need Super Bowl parties. It was every time they picked up the Bible and put it into practice and they dug out the gold that is there, it'd be a Super Bowl every time. They wouldn't have to wait till next year. They could hardly wait till next Sunday. He says this living sacrifice is logical. It's logical service. You're there serving God. And you're doing that by serving other people that are around you. And he's going to talk about that more here in Romans chapter 12 when he gets into the gifts, and he's only going to mention seven of those. And it's great. It's wonderful. He, he says, it's your spiritual service. It belongs to you. God gave it to you to do so that you can experience life as it was meant to be. A lot of Christians run around and they think they're living and they're dead where they stand. They've never grown up. They're content in their immaturity. And when they goof up in life or screw things up and get involved in sin, they don't know how to handle it. You know, we let the world dictate to us, the, the Christian church, who is to be, you know, uh, worthy of our sympathy or our forgiveness or whatever. And a lot of times that's just dog eat dog. They want Christians out of the way. They don't want to be, you know, imposed upon. Even though they know don't, I should say, don't know Bo Diddley about Christianity. Oh, you're trying to set up a theocracy here. What would, wrong, what would be wrong with that if the king could do it? 
You think the world and the current condition that it is in? I mean, I just got done playing here at the start of this this podcast. You got witch doctors. The people that are involved in the demonic realm. Dictating to the world, like I said, who's going to live and who's going to die. And they're trying to figure out how we're going to kill them. You think that is better? (laughs) It just blows my mind how the world thinks. And so then Paul, he turns to verse 2 here in chapter 12. And he drives home the point even more clearly. We got another, not coordinating conjunction, just a conjunction here. And do not be conformed to this age. Most of the translations have to this world, but it's actually the age, the spirit of the age, if you will. And of course, Paul, he's dealing with what was going on at that time, but it hasn't ever changed. The Romans were into pagan worship and worshiping of the the Caesars. Certainly weren't in accepting of what God was doing as far as, you know, transforming society. They didn't want until they found out, you know what, uh, if we don't embrace this, at least in some way, this whole idea of Christianity, all these, all these fanatics are out there. If we don't embrace this in some way, you know, the other pagans are going to come in and are going to, you know, from the Gauls and whatever, they're going to come down here and they're going to uh, put a beating on us. It's going to cause the the Roman Empire to crumble. And though they embraced it and ended up perverting it with the, during the days of uh, Constantine, uh, and it, Christianity in a roundabout way saved the empire, at least temporarily. But the apostle Paul is saying, don't be conformed. They need to be schematized. You ever know what a schema is? I remember growing up in my younger days, right after I got out of high school, I uh, took a, a a drafter's job. You know what a drafter was back at the time when you had had to actually use a mechanical pencil and and a slide rule and all that kind of stuff, the squares and stuff like that to uh, do drawings, do do mechanical drawings. I took a, a, an assistant job there. I was kind of kind of more of a of a gopher than anything, but still I helped out uh, do schemes, schemes in the sense of plans, blueprints. I used to run the blueprint machine. Before we have the, what do what they call it today? Uh, they call it, there's another way of doing it today. It's, it's by mechanical. I don't say mechanical. Uh, the drafting machines in the sense of it's all computer generated. Well, I did it the old-fashioned way, way back when. The big machine put in these specially coated pieces of paper, and on the backside, the blueprints would come out. And these things were like four by six sheets. And these would go to the engineers that were inside the power plant that I was helping to helping to build. It was a schema. It was the form that the, in, in paper, in print, and the measurements and all this kind of stuff, that the power plant was supposed to take. The, what Paul is saying here is don't be shaped by the age. The way the age, uh, the, the the age of the of the world, or be conformed to the world, the way it thinks. In fact, you know, uh, John would say later on, "Don't even love the world. 
Because if you love the world, the love of God is not, because that kind of stuff has nothing to do with it. It hates God. In fact, Paul had pointed this out clear back at the early part of the book of Romans when he was initially condemning people, you know, for their for their uh, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. They were haters of God. Paul is saying, don't be shaped by that. Don't be conformed by it. Don't be schematized. Don't climb into bed with them. But how many times do we see that? Just the polar opposite. I've said and talked to my friends, some of my Christian friends uh, before who asked me about this type of stuff. And I said, you know what? Right now, the Christian church has got it completely backwards. Instead of the, of the, the church, you know, shaping the world in the way it should think and impressing upon it what it should do and right and wrong, it's the other way around. In fact, I just got a thing here the other day from one church that I, I visited, I don't know, probably four or five times. I wouldn't go there today if it was the last church on earth. Why? Because it has walked so far away from God and has been so conformed by the world and its thinking and its music and its presentation up on stage, you've got people that look like the world up there. They don't even look like ministers of Christ. I wouldn't give it anybody a plug nickel for it. Instead of the world being conformed or at least being transformed by the gospel, it's the other way around today. You want to know why the rest of society is falling I heard the other day, is transforming itself and going in the direction of World War III because it's reaping from the corruption that it has bred for the past hundred years, if not longer, when it'll go back to the Enlightenment period, it, ha it is reaping what it has sown. It has kicked God to the curb. That type of godly thinking is gone for the most part, except for a little remnant here and there. And it's now on the verge of total collapse. And some people simply think, well, you know, if it would just get Donald I like Donald Trump, not necessarily as a, as a Christian spokesman, because I don't think that's what he is. But there are people who are relying upon him to turn the world back from the brink of World War III, and I'm thinking, okay, well, that might last four years, maybe. Then what? Then what are you going to, who are you going to rely on then? It's, it's not going to be somebody who's godly. It's certainly not going to be somebody who wants to preach the gospel and say, you know what, the, the way, the truth, and the life is right here before us. The righteousness of God is right here. We don't want that. Well, what are you going to, you're going to be right back to World War III again. This is the direction that the world wants to take Christians, the the spirit of the age, if you will. That's why Paul then turns around, he throws in this strong adversity, but we've heard this, I don't know how many times. You can probably calculate it here shortly. Let me, let me, let me see how many times he, he says this in, he uses this strong adversity, 69 times, holy moly. I'm just looking at it right now. I just, I just pulled it up. He uses the strong adversity 69 times in the book of Romans alone. But, but what? But metamorphize. You know, when we talk about metamorphosis here, it's not just something you see in a sci-fi flick. 
you know, when we talk about metamorphosis, we're actually talking about uh, kind of what you see in butterflies. You're going from being a uh, uh, a moth to a butterfly. Well, actually, from a worm. Uh, what do they call them? Uh, caterpillar. Caterpillar to to a moth. That's the word that's being used here. It's also the word that was used when Jesus was transformed. You remember that? Back over in the book of uh, book of Matthew, when Jesus took his disciples up on the uh, up on the mountain, he was transformed. That's the same word here. You as a Christian, don't be schematized. Don't follow the pattern of the world. But metamorphize, transform. This is what I would call a a branch of uh, sanctification. That big 85 cent word saying, you know what? You need to move from a state where you were battling with God to a to a point of maturity where you're more and more like what Jesus Christ is. The oh, really the original man that Adam was, that Jesus Christ is now. That's what God wants you as a Christian to do, to transform your way of thinking. Because he says, by the renewal of your mind. You know, when you become a new creature, it's not just that you're going to have this glorified, spiritual, wonderful body and all that kind of stuff that you're going to enjoy in heaven one day. It's a transformation of your mind. Again, it goes back to what is logical. Is that what we do, though? Oftentimes, like I said, our our Sunday schools and our worship services, you know, where the Christians should be challenged to not only become more informed about the Christian faith, but then to be challenged to live in a way is vacuous. We've left that behind. Because we think, you know what, we need to do trunk or treat and Halloween and uh, you know, for Halloween and all these other just totally nonsensical, godless, ungodly ways of approaching the Christian life as well as trying to reach the world. We're not transformed or metamorphized. We haven't changed the form. A lot of the times we end up because of very bad theology, which one thing that drives me nuts, I don't know, probably as much as anything when it comes to the Christian service today is the just totally ungodly uh, music. The lyrical content is terrible because most of it, if it's not a 7-Eleven song, as I mentioned before, it's about me, myself, and I. What did I do? I'm going to do this, and I'm going to... You're not going to do anything and have it be pleasing to God. There's no transformation there. It's all all about you. Well, I'm sorry. That's not a renewal of the mind. And here, you know, there are some some translations. It says your mind. That was actually imposed here. Uh, There's a a variant here. It's actually just a, a transformation or renewal of the mind. I think it's talking about it in a collective sense. He's talking to the Roman Christians there, but I think he's talking about all Christians everywhere. If you really want to live the Christian life, it's going to start with your mind. After conversion, that is. It's not something that you do. It's something that you do after. This is the practical part of being a Christian. 
It says, you know, somebody said, well, dude, now you're talking about what is a true Christian. Of course, that's what the Apostle Paul's talking about. You don't think after the world? You know who the master of the world is? Is the, is the God of this world, it's the devil. You don't want to be thinking after that. You want to be thinking after the mind of God as the Spirit of God is given. In fact, he goes on and he says here, uh, he uses this preposition to point to this testing. If your mind has been transformed and not conformed to the world, it's for this test to be tested. If you know what the will of God is, and I don't know how many times I've heard people either on the boob tube, you know, your evangelistic preachers or whatever on there, or uh, it's a kind of a favorite topic from time to time, whether you're in the cemetery, seminary, <laughs> or in your local churches, they want to know what the will of God is. If you want to know what the will of God is, you're going to have to transform your mind. You're going to have to move from the worldview that you had as a secular lost person dead in your trespasses and sins, you're going to have to move from that and make a concerted effort to start thinking the things of God. And the only way you're going to know that is, once again, you've got to pick up God's Word, and you've got to do an intense study like we're doing here in the book of Romans. If this is, as I think it's pretty much true, is the Christian Constitution, then you've got to get back here and know what it says. Whether we're talking about the lost man, the natural man, dead in his trespasses and sins, going back to the time when he is, like I said, chapter 1, he's talking about suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. You've got to study that. You've got to think about it. You've got to put it into your life and say, you know what? This is not just talking about a distant people out there somewhere. This is talking about me and the way that I was, and I need to move away from that, and I need to know what faith is, not just you know, this dilly-dally whatever that, you know, it's something that you concoct out of thin air. It's something that is after the pattern that God has given us in the persons like Abraham and David and Paul and Peter and John. It's got to be after that. That way, when the test comes about this metamorphizing of your life, do you know whether you've transformed or whatever, you'll know what the will of God is. Now, once again, does this mean that you're going to know this infinitely? No. There's going to be, obviously, a, a, a difference between your thought processes and God's. He's infinite, you're finite. But still, this doesn't mean you're left out there with nothing as a guide. Quit thinking the Bible is this antique, antiquated, uh, that was yesteryear type of a document. It is living. It is uh, breathing. It is what, what did the uh, uh, writer to the Hebrews say over in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12? The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Well, when you know the thoughts and intentions of the heart and you start to metamorphize, you start to transform your life to think godly thoughts, then you'll know where that came from. It came from the Word of God, starting there. And you put that into practice. 
But then he says, it's not just the will of God, but is what is good and pleasing and perfect. You know, uh, so many times we just kind of get lost in this nebulous, well, you know, if it's the will of God this and it's the will of God that, then I'll do it and uh, that'll be just the end of it right there. And oftentimes that has nothing to do with the will of God. That has, the, that has to do with the will of the person, hoping that maybe God will co- conform to what he has to say. Oh, God, if it's your will, give me the $455 billion lottery. That way all will be well in the world and I'll give this. No, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. You don't pray for winning the lottery. That's ridiculous. That whole thing is schematized. To, to exalt the world, to put a person in a, in a position where they will be destroyed. Oh, well, yeah, but all these people who have won the lottery, they're not destroyed. You go check them out. I guarantee you their lives are miserable. Oh, it's not that God doesn't want you to have money. That's, that's fine. But when you get those ungodly amounts like that out there, you're you're asking for all kinds of problems. Or whether, like I said earlier, you got the 85-year-old guy or 70-year-old guy chasing a 19-year-old uh, scammer, which is probably another guy in India. <laughs> He's sending him pictures so that he can be scammed that way. What is good and pleasing and perfect when it pertains to the will of God? That's going to start with a renewing of the mind. In fact, there was a reference here I had earlier. Let me see if I can find this really quickly here. Maybe, maybe not. Let me see here. Uh, it was, hang on a second. I think, yep, I think I can get this here. Hang on a second. Yep. Right. Nope. <laughs> I'm trying to find the reference I had here earlier. It had to do with the Holy Spirit doing this, and I had it here in a second ago. Let me see if I can find this here. Uh, don't mean to take up all your time. If you need to go to the restroom, you may. <laughs> so let me see here. I'm looking for the Lexeme here. And oh, here we go. Here we go. Hang on. Hang on. He's almost got it here. And what there was. Oh, there we go. I found it. It's over in Titus chapter three and verse five. And I think it gives us a clear indication of just where this pleasing part comes from, this renewal part that leads to the, the good and the pleasing and the acceptable and so on and so forth. In Titus 3, 5, it says, He saved us, not on the basis of, of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who does the renewing as he points us to the things that God has taught. And Jesus, you know, he brings, uh, he says the, uh, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit was going to bring to our remembrance the things that he had taught. That's what the comforter was going to do. But, But the comforter doesn't do it all on his own out there, creating some new material out of thin air. He keeps coming back to the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. You've got to get into it if your mind is going to be renewed, if your life is going to be transformed into what a Christian should be, or what a Christ, how a Christian should live and think and propagate as his new world view as the opposed to the one 
where he was thinking after the world. Are you there? Are you there yet? Like I said, these, these two verses are just, wow. Uh, they're just packed with all kinds of insight on what the Christian life is about. And this is what I said, you know, the, the Apostle Paul is now transforming from what he has taught about the old life and the Jews to how Christians are supposed to behave. And it's going to be pretty much this way for the rest of the book of Romans. I think this is kind of what a lot of Christians or individuals are looking for anyway. How do I live the Christian life? Well, now you're about to find out. And some of it is not going to be pleasing because it's going to cut across a lot of the traditional thinking that Christians have bought into over the years and is false. So I hope you'll bear with me as we continue on this journey through the Christian Constitution. If you have any questions or comments, you can write me podcast at Dr. Paul. Well, not Dr. Paul. It's uh, podcast at Capro, C-A-P-R-O dot info. And I'll try to get back to you as quick as possible. Until then, you have a great day. Look forward to talking to you again in the future.